0: Okay, so welcome back, everybody, for the new episode of the La Thinkers podcast. And today, we have Dr. Antoni Chergoski from the Political Science Department joining us to talk about the 2020 elections of the president. Thanks for joining us, Antoni.
1: You're with you, Son.
0: Great. Okay. So, like I said, before, uh, our com- uh, let- as we communicated before this uh, podcast, I told you I'm not so familiar with the elections. So, and I'm so glad you mentioned before <laughs> we're recording this that you basically, you assume like actually nobody has any background. So that's perfect for me. I would just start to throw at you some dumb questions from the beginning, okay? So the first one will be um, why and how did Joe Biden win the Democratic Party's nomination as we see?
1: Yeah, song, well, I, I think everyone looking back at it now, is saying to themselves oh it looked like joe biden was cooked there in terms of his ability to become the democratic nominee and then he has this huge rebound in his fortunes throughout the democratic party's nomination contest starting with south carolina the primary election held there and then going into the future contests and it just seemed like overnight Joe Biden went from being really in a lot of trouble to becoming the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party, which he is now. And Song, you know, the the interesting thing about party nominations, just thinking about them big picture, is that they tell us a lot about a political party. I think you can learn a lot about a political party by watching how its nomination process plays out. And what we saw with the Democratic Party's nomination was how extremely important the African-American vote was, because you have a few states that start the process. Of course, Iowa is the first state in the process, the state that goes first. And, you know, it it had some issues in terms of its ability to count the votes. And, And then it went to New Hampshire and then Nevada. And then it went to South Carolina as the fourth state in the Democratic Party's presidential nomination process. And the thing that set South Carolina apart from those other states is this large African-American population. And then other states that came after South Carolina also had large African-American populations. And that proved to be the turning point for Joe Biden. And Song, what it showed to me is that the African-American vote in the Democratic Party is so essential for anyone who wishes to be the party's nomination. The Democratic Party is now majority-minority. And by that, I mean that a majority of Democratic voters are people of color. And so any Democratic Party politician who wants to do well, especially in a national election, really needs to attract the support of people of color. And that had always been Bernie Sanders' Achilles heel, in the sense that Bernie Sanders did really well among kind of college-aged people, and he did really well among kind of some, some like white liberals. But Bernie Sanders had never been able to attract significant support from African Americans. And so even though it looked at first like Bernie Sanders was perhaps on the way to becoming the nominee, the fact that Joe Biden maintained steadfast support among African Americans meant that In the end, we have Joe Biden and Donald Trump facing off in November for the 2020 presidential election.
0: That's interesting. So what what is the key values that Joe Biden has that attracts all these African uh, American voters?
1: Well, one thing, Song, is that Joe Biden leaned really heavily into the fact that he was an ally of Barack Obama and that he was at Barack Obama's side throughout those eight years that Barack Obama was president. And he used that to try to maintain and and gain credibility with African-Americans. Also, I think you have to take into account the fact that African-American voters as a bloc are not they're they're a bit more moderate than some other factions within the the, the democratic party compared to white, whites within the democratic party latinos within the democratic party um and and so from that angle i think the credibility that biden had built up and he was by the way joe biden was able to very cleverly sort of drive a wedge between bernie sanders and barack obama By pointing out, well, Bernie Sanders complained about this, that Barack Obama did, and Bernie Sanders complained about that, that Barack Obama did. And that was very clever in the sense that Biden was able to position himself as the person who would continue what Barack Obama had started during his first two, during his two terms as presidency, And because Barack Obama is so loved within the Democratic Party, he's so loved among Democratic voters, it turned out to be a winning strategy, right? To just say, look, Barack Obama picked me to be the vice president. I was a loyal vice president. I was at his side for eight years. And I'm going to continue what Barack Obama started. And that turned out to be a winning message in the end, even though for a while it looked like Biden was in some trouble.
0: That's interesting. So, um, according to what you just mentioned, we understand that, uh, Democrats was really good at identity politics at attracting minority, uh, population. But now you, you were claiming that the majority voters of democratic have now turned, uh, turned to be minority populations only. Did this thing happen recently? It, it, like it, when it, did, this ha- when did this happen?
1: It's a great question, right? And and it shows how the Democratic Party has really changed over time. Um, Because for, and my, my students are always shocked when I tell them this, that like the Democratic Party coming out of the Civil War, the Democratic Party was the party of white supremacy. It was the party of the South. It was the party of Southern segregationists. And for a really long time, that was kind of the branding of the Democratic Party. I I mean, obviously, you had the Republicans kind of with a very different brand as sort of the party of the Union in the Civil War, the party of Lincoln, the first Republican president. So it's a really interesting history, the history of the two political parties, but When you start to see changes is what is in the New Deal, first of all, with Franklin D. Roosevelt in the Great Depression, the New Deal, the expansion of the federal government, the growing role of the federal government in providing social assistance, that begins to make the Democratic Party less of a Southern white party and more of a diverse party. And then you have Lyndon Johnson uh, following the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Lyndon Johnson, Democratic president who signs into law the 1964 Civil Rights Act and then the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And that is where we start, start to see strong majorities of African-Americans voting for the Democratic Party, uh, coming out of the civil rights movement, coming out of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And then that continues on as we go toward the 90s, into the 2000s. And then once we get to Barack Obama's election, you see 95% of African-Americans favoring the Democratic candidate. And Song, what's going on in the background here is that America has become more racially and eth- ethnically diverse. And so in, so 30 years ago, a political party could not have survived by being a minority white party. It's just like the math doesn't work. You know, in a, in a country that is less racially diverse, both parties would have to be majority white to be viable. But that's no longer the case because of how 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 much more racially and ethnically diverse the two parties have become. And that is, I think, an underappreciated aspect of kind of how the political parties have changed over time. That now you no longer, the Democrats no longer need to be a majority white party to win national elections. Um, So I think that's been a really important development in American history. And my goodness, it's just yet another example of the political and social implications of America becoming an increasingly ethnically diverse and racially diverse nation.
0: Does the mathematics work out there? How many population of the minority are we talking about here? to big enough to win the election.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, the Democrats can win a national majority, even if they lose the white vote pretty substantially. Um, And the reason that the Democratic Party can do that is it assumes that the Democrats win an overwhelming majority among Black voters and a very strong majority among Asian voters and Latina, Latinx voters. So when you add up really strong majorities among people of color, the Democrats can lose white voters by a pretty decent margin and still win a national election. And in fact, that's exactly what happened in 2008 and 2012, when Barack Obama was first elected and then when he was reelected. Barack Obama lost white voters and he still won convincingly when you look at both the electoral college and you look at the electoral, uh, when you look at the electoral college and you look at the popular vote overall.
0: Interesting. But then can you elaborate on then why in 2016 it's the reverse?
1: Yeah, yeah. So Song, what happened in 2016 was there were three key states that swung the election. Talk about the unique aspects of American elections, that it can be decided by about 60,000, 70,000 voters in three states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And because you had Donald Trump winning by very slim margins in those three states, he was able to win those three states and that took him over the threshold of electoral votes the 270 magic number 270 electoral votes needed to win the presidency his victories in those states by like a combined 70,000 votes in those three states Tell, tell you people's vote like really matters if they live in like one of the swing states, one of the closely decided states like Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania. If you live in one of those three states your vote really matters. Um, One of the unique parts of the Electoral College. Uh, But basically what was able to happen was there was um, reduced turnout among people of color when you look at 2016 compared to the Obama elections. Um, so in in key state and a case study of this is milwaukee in milwaukee african American turnout dipped in two thousand and sixteen compared to obama 's two elections two thousand and eight and two thousand and twelve and the same was true in other really key states meanwhile on the uh, meanwhile so split screen, you have white, rural voters really starting to get behind the Republican Party in a big way. And you put those two things together, kind of rural, white communities going more toward the Republican Party and depressed turnout among communities of color, and that was just enough for Donald Trump to eke out a win in the three decisive states of Pennsylvania,
0: Michigan, and Wisconsin. Wow. So that's, that was an edge victory, huh? Oh my,
1: yeah. I mean, that was a really slim victory, you know, and you know, you flip 70,000 voters in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, you flip 70,000 voters the other way, Hillary Clinton's the president. And, and so that's the wild thing about American presidential elections. Because it's the electoral college and not the national popular vote, you know, Donald Trump lost the national popular vote by two percentage points, but that doesn't matter because that's not how we decide who the president is. We decided the president is based on who wins enough states to collectively add up to 270 electoral votes. And what happened was he just eked out these incredibly slim margins in just enough states to win. And in my opinion, the most shocking presidential election result in American history, 2016, by less than 100,000 votes.
0: Wow. Yeah. So I, I can understand the depression of the minority populations in big cities. Maybe they just move out according to a certain kind of economic reason or political reasons. But what's so special about the white rural community? Community, Why did they yeah. lean way more towards Donald Trump? Were they voting before? They were kind of voting side, uh, one side on the other, or actually they were not even voting before, but now they decided to actually come out and show show their voting power.
1: So a couple important things to mention there, Song. So, so first of all, Um, White rural communities have become more aligned with the Republican Party, while urban areas have become more aligned with the Democratic Party. And political scientists refer to this as geographic polarization. So two different regional sort of areas moving apart politically, where rural communities are moving more in the Republican direction and urban communities are moving more in the Democratic direction. And so when you think about, like, rural polarization, r- r- geographic polarization, it's just a question of kind of like, well, if rural communities are kind of all Republican and urban communities are all Democratic, which is a generalization, but that's kind of the direction that things are going. It's kind of a numbers game, you know, then, then the question becomes, well, how high is participation in the rural areas, and how high is participation in the urban areas? It's just kind of a matter of, well, who, you know, do Republicans turn out more of their voters, or do Democrats turn out more of their voters? You could imagine a less divided electorate, you know, a less partisan electorate. You could imagine a less polarized electorate, voters who are open to the possibility of voting for both parties. You know, w- what a concept, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's really not the case so much in America today. So it really is just a battle over turnout now is what elections have come, have become. Republicans turning out the people who vote Republican. Democrats turning out the people who vote Democrat. And whoever turns out the most people wins. A, a Kind of a big picture thought that political scientists are having about this is, are we in post-persuasion elections? Where like in the past, maybe as a candidate, you would work hard if you were a Democrat, you would work hard to convince the people kind of in the middle and some Republicans to vote for you. And if you were a Republican, you would work really hard for the people in the middle and some Democrats to vote for you. You would try to persuade people. But if we're in a post-persuasion era, then we might be in an era where you don't even bother trying to persuade people who only kind of agree with you to vote for you. Or, you know, you, you, you don't even bother reaching out to the other side. You just do whatever you can to fire up your own side. Um, and I think that's a real problem for the United States, because what do partisans respond to? They respond to being told how awful the other side is. They respond to being told to how, you know, Republicans respond to being to- told how great Donald Trump is and how terrible Joe Biden is. Democrats respond to the opposite. And so if that's the mode of campaigning now, as opposed to persuasion it's something that keeps me up at night, honestly, um, because I don't think it's it's the healthiest way for us to have campaigning. I don't think it's the healthiest way for us, to, you know, to have our elections work if we're just, you know, trying to motivate people who already agree with us as opposed to trying to change minds.
0: That's almost like a self reinforcement process to yeah to go to extreme, right? Thinking about compare this to a marketing. It's really easy to see in marketing, you want to persuade the switchable consumers, which are not too loyal to either brand. So they may switch from one to the other. But now, according to your description, it's more about I just want to be responsible to the people who are loyal to me. And then I'm going to just raise their participation.
1: Yeah. So the way to think about kind of... Sort of post persuasion elections. We also call uh, another kind of way that political scientists think about this song is we think about mobilization versus persuasion. Do you mobilize the people who are already on your side, or do you try to persuade people to come around to your way of thinking? And so, uh, because kind of based on you know your analogy, it would be like Coke instead of trying to persuade people who drink Pepsi to to drink Coke, it would be marketing to only people who drink Coke to just try to get them as excited and fired up as possible about drinking as much Coke as possible. I mean, in many ways, that's what's happened in American politics today. And that's the kind of campaign we're seeing emerging. Well, we've seen this, especially among Donald Trump, but my goodness, did we see this in 2016. We saw a very negative campaign that you know, it wasn't about trying to... So, for example, Donald Trump is not interested in a, in, in, a, in a kind of a message that can maybe reach 50, 52, 53, 55% of the population. Donald Trump's whole campaign right now is angled at the 33% of the population who is deeply devoted to him and making them as excited as possible to vote for him. And then hopefully picking up, you know, some kind of, you know, Republicans here and there who are just, you know, can't imagine voting for Joe Biden. Um, But What this all adds up to, Song, is a really negative and a really divisive era in politics. Because if you don't feel the obligation to persuade people to come to your side, then how will common ground be found? And how will we get out of this mess that we're in of really divisive and really partisan and really polarize politics.
0: Are the voters aware of this? Are they accepting this as the new norm? Or actually, they, they don't like it either, or actually they don't realize?
1: Well, uh, it, it's a really good question. Uh, one thing I would note in response to that question is a trend called negative partisanship. And negative partisanship means that people are becoming increasingly motivated, not by how much they love their own political party, but by how much they cannot stand the other party. Just like, it's, it's like a Democrat, negative partisanship is like a Democrat who says, well, the Democrats are okay, but oh, those Republicans, I can't take it. Or it's like a, a Republican who says, "Well, you know, the Republicans are okay, but oh, I just those Democrats are are going to ruin America as we know it." So I think another thing that's going on, another really important development in American politics and in American life, is this development of negative partisanship, where people are more motivated by disliking the other side and even hating the other side and that is what strategists and campaigners and candidates are tapping into now and don't get me wrong you know there've always been there's always been nastiness in american politics right there there was never a golden age when american politics was totally positive and everyone got along and it was totally civil and everyone was happy you know there there was no golden age of american politics but the trend is still unmistakable that more and more people are driven by animosity and dislike and hatred toward the other party and that is more and more in the background and motivating them as they vote as they participate in politics as they think about politics again i just don't think it's healthy as a, for a democracy where where people are acting out of kind of that you know, sense that, well, you know, my side might be okay, but the other side is gonna destroy the, uh, the country. So I gotta go vote to just to beat the other side. I just don't think that's a great place for us to be in as a country. And, and it's one of the things that worries me the most as a political scientist.
0: Yeah, that makes sense because that will actually eventually reflect on people's actions and the politicians actions, right? It's not just about the election later when we start to make policies or anything. We start to say, "Hey, I only care about this part, and screw the other part. Whatever you want, no matter if it's good for the country or whatever, I'm just gonna shut it down." It's well, yeah, it's I become mean, a pure I, in negotiation compared to you know a common good and and common utilities, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, like, how are you, if you're a Republican politician, how are you going to make a deal with the Democrats when your Republican voters think that the Democrats have bad intentions for the country. And if you're a democratic politician, how are you going to go and negotiate in good faith and compromise with the 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 republicans on a new policy when your own voters think that the republicans are just betraying the country and 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 hate america. You know, so it is very much reflected in the actions of politicians and so it, may, it does make me think, you know, a, a question that I commonly get is like, where did all this partisanship come from, right? Like,
0: like From the like, beginning, yeah.
1: Yeah, like, like, like where did all this partisanship come from? And a big reason is the people who participate in politics the most, the activists, the donors, the people who are most engaged in politics, Also, tend to be the ones with the strongest attitudes. And so, if you're a politician, you have donors who are donating to you and they despise the other party. And how are you going to work with the other party? And you have volunteers for your campaign who despise the other party. And how are they going to keep volunteering for you if you work with the other side? So, you know, a big part of this is. And, you know, bless their hearts, you know, the the activists out there. I mean, the activists do, you know, political activists are, are so important in America. They, they, it, it, throughout the United States, throughout American history, political activists have been really important in making a lot of good things happen. But I fear today that there are political activists who are increasing the partisanship and polarization in the country because people are motivated to participate by the fact that they don't like the other part. They're motivated to participate by negative partisanship. Um, And again, I I question if that's a healthy situation for uh, for a liberal democracy to be in.
0: Yeah, especially it's a collective effort. It's not saying like one activist or which activists are doing, it's actually the way these things are conducted eventually, just leaned ter- leaning, are leaning towards this binary track progress. Well,
1: yeah, yeah, and and, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, one one way out of this mess would be potentially getting beyond the two the two party system um, and getting beyond that binary that that you referenced. Um, you know, where people don't have to, where it just doesn't have to be this blood sport between two sides that are roughly equal in strength, roughly equal in number. Um, you know, uh, the fact that (laughs) another thing, Song, is that, and this just is, add this to the pile of reasons that are creating dysfunction in American politics, that right now the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are roughly equal in strength in terms of their ability to compete in elections, in terms of their popularity in the public. And so when you have two roughly equal forces going at each other, it's gonna be ugly. And so in the past, if we wanna take a lesson from American history, In the past, when things have been, like, better, it's been an era where one party was just dominant, and the other party kind of had to work with the other party because, well, the two parties kind of had to work together because one was dominant and the other was just trying to get what it could because it didn't have really a chance of winning elections, so it would just do what it could to work with the dominant party to, to get concessions to you know get maybe 10% of what they want even if they can't get 100% of what they want so i think that that is a really underappreciated reason for why things are so bad right now in american politics is elections are so closely co- com- they are so competitive and and the margins are so slim And the parties are so evenly matched, and you add that into the mix, and that doesn't help matters at all Um, because it just makes things even uglier, right? It just makes things even more divisive, makes politics even more of a blood sport.
0: It's a pretty easy analogy to think about. Just think about team working with two people. Like they can work together to make the country better or make the team perform better if they just agree on something, but collaborating and go against each other, bouncing ideas, brainstorming, and then collaborate together to make things better, which is one plus one bigger than two. Or it can turn into another situation, which is basically like you turn a collaboration into a competition, which is toxic for for team working, but we see that thing actually happen all the time at a small scale when you only have like two people group. It seems like we're all leaning towards the competition side for now, compared to the collaboration side. Oh, oh, exactly,
1: and and that's because when elections are so closely contested, there is not a great reason for the two sides to work together. And mm-hmm. you think about it this way, you know, like if I'm if I'm the Democrats, the the minority party in the Senate right now. Would I want to work with the Republicans, or would I want to put all of my efforts toward winning the majority, where I can accomplish far more than I can right now as the minority party? And you think of the same for the Republicans, now the minority party in the House of Representatives. If you're the Republicans, do you work with the Democrats and maybe annoy Your voters who think the Democrats are a threat to everything we know and love? Or do you put your energies toward trying to win back the majority where you can accomplish way more than you can as the minority party? So the rules of the game and the institutional structures that we have right now very much push the political parties toward a strategy of combat and constant conflict as opposed to one of cooperation. Just the incentives are not there for cooperation because of the attitudes of the voters and because with the parties evenly matched and with elections so closely contested, shoot, if you're the minority party, just try to win the majority. Don't bother working with the majority, just try to win back power that's the mode we're in right now. And I think that's an underappreciated reason for why Congress is such a mess and and why American politics more generally is such a mess right now.
0: So with all that being said, I think we have a very good, you described very clearly what's going on right now. Now let's move forward to 2020, actually not forward, too much forward. Um, What do you think will happen in the coming election, is it going to be similar to 2016 that the majority uh, responsibility is actually leaning towards that three state and with the minority voters there and the rural white community there, or actually the situation has changed slightly?
1: Well, like, the cre- this is like the wild thing about like American presidential elections. Like you and me sitting here in Wisconsin, we have, the two of us, we, ha- we are in like the top 99% for how valuable our vote is in the upcoming presidential election. If you live in Alabama, I'm sorry, your vote just doesn't really matter. It just doesn't because that state is going for Trump. It just is. And if you live in a state like, uh, like oh, uh, Massachusetts, vote really doesn't matter because that state is going for Biden. So the peculiar thing about American presidential elections is that they are not nationwide contests. They are fought in maybe six, seven, eight, nine, if you're generous, uh, states. And so Song, in this election, the pivotal states are in in the Midwest are, once again, uh, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And then the other key states are viewed as North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. And so if you live in one of those six states, you're in luck. Your vote really counts. Your vote is gonna make a big difference in deciding the election. There's gonna be a lot of campaign activity in your state. There's going to be a lot of commercials, so maybe that's the bad part about it. There's gonna be endless campaign commercials in your state. Um, There's gonna be a lot of money spent in your state by the candidates, but if you don't live in Wisconsin, if you don't live in Michigan or Pennsylvania, if you don't live in North Carolina, Florida, or Arizona, the presidential election might as well not even be going on for all practical purposes because there's no incentive for the campaigns to spend money in a state like Alabama that is obviously gonna vote for Trump. There's no incentive for candidates to spend money in Massachusetts, which is obviously gonna vote for Biden. So the lay of the land is that it will be a very small number of states that get attention because of the the electoral college. And, And I always use this as just a fantastic example of how the rules really make a difference. Because of how we elect presidents in the United States, Wisconsin voters have among the most valuable votes in the country. Uh, the, voter, the votes of the people in Alabama, their votes aren't worth a darn. Um, so it really, that, that's kind of the lay of the land right now. And you know, a, as we're taping this, um, Biden does have a lead in the, in the polls. And you mean in Wisconsin or in all the six states you just mentioned? It, 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 nationally and in many of the six states, yeah. And I think Wisconsin is gaining a lot of attention in particular, Song, because, you know, you, you, you talk to Democrats and you ask them, well, how do you feel about Pennsylvania? They say, feel pretty good. How do you feel about Michigan? Feel pretty good about Michigan. How do you feel about Wisconsin? And that's when like the panic starts coming over their faces. Um, It's very possible that Wisconsin will be the decisive state in the 2020 presidential election. Um, Because what does Joe Biden have to do to win the presidential election? Well, one way he could win is to win all of the states that Hillary Clinton won, and then take back Pennsylvania from Trump, take back Michigan from Trump, and take back Wisconsin from Trump. And if he does that, he wins. He wins the election. But as I said, like the Democrats don't feel all that comfortable about Wisconsin. Um, and so then the question is, well, could North Carolina go for Biden? Could Arizona go for Biden? Um, the list of truly competitive states is not a long list. Um, And so the presidential election over the next several months will be fought in a limited number of states because of the Electoral College and because of the fact that just not many states are truly up for grabs. Not many states it's not the case that in many states you honestly don't know which way it's going to go. In the majority of states, we already know, you know, which way they're going to go in November. So my, what I always say, American presidential elections are weird. They're just weird.
0: Interesting. (laughs) So that's your overview of what's going on right now, which totally makes sense. Now, like we communicated before this interview, what do you think the pandemic and the economic situation is going to do this, uh, do uh, to the 2020 election?
1: It's a really important question, Song, you know, and as political scientists, we have all kinds of fancy modeling uh, that we can use to try to predict the outcome of a presidential election. But as is the case, sometimes the simplest models are the best. And... What we found is that if you just look at two variables, you can get a pretty darn good read on how the election is gonna turn out. You look at the 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 approval rating of the current president and you look at GDP change in quarter two of the election year. And if you use those two figures, those two figures alone can give you a pretty good read of how the presidential election is going to turn out so obviously the GDP numbers would and, and you know I'm just kind of assuming what we're going to get but the GDP numbers are of the sort and just all kinds of economic data if you look at the economic data it does not bode well for the incumbent president, Donald Trump. Um, And if you look at his approval rating, it doesn't give you a clear indication either way. It's a little bit of a... What's
0: the approval rating right now for Donald Trump? Yeah,
1: his approval rating is about 42% nationally. And the really odd thing about his approval rating song is that it has barely budged throughout his presidency. And so, you know, whenever I teach students about presidential approval ratings and public opinion, I always have to add the asterisk, like Donald Trump is totally different from previous presidents and how his approval rating looks. It's different because normally you would see a fair bit of variation in a president's approval rating throughout their presidency, right? I mean, like if, like classic example is that when is that uh, September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks overnight literally overnight George Bush's approval rating went from about 52% to about 90% so like in like a sp- in a span of like a couple of days his approval rating went up by like 37 38 percentage points And that's pretty typical, I mean, like that, that, you know, things like that would move presidential approval ratings. So now I'm in kind of like the old universe of how presidential approval ratings work. So crises matter, the state of the economy matters, um, you know, like a major tragedy, a major shock to the system would matter. Um so for example, like Hurricane Katrina reduced George W. Bush's approval rating, The death of Osama bin Laden briefly increased Barack Obama's approval rating. Um, the financial crisis decreased George W. Bush's approval rating. We were seeing that like the state of the world was affecting presidential approval ratings under Obama and under Obama and George W. Bush. But the peculiar thing about Donald Trump is that his approval rating has barely
0: budged
1: throughout his presidency.
0: I think. Can we're you talking... can you briefly mention like how many crises like happened during his pre- presidency and yeah, just well, just give us an idea.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, like in in the in the normal world, in in like regular. In, like, a regular situation, or at least what we thought was a regular situation, impeachment would have affected Donald Trump's approval rating. And in the kind of like the, the, what we thought we knew about presidential approval ratings, COVID 19 would have had a huge effect on his approval rating. And that just hasn't played out. And you know, what we've seen is like a range of maybe 38% approval at the low point up to like 45% at the high points, like a range of like seven points. And that is nothing compared to the variation that we've seen in presidential approval for all presidents that we have data on going back to Eisenhower. So what this tells me is that people long ago, made up their mind about Donald Trump. And people know what they think about Donald Trump. And not even impeachment can change what they think about Donald Trump. Not even a -a once-in-a-century pandemic is really changing what people think about Donald Trump. So this has been, I mean, obviously, it's hard to study the lack of variation, right? But this has been a tough nut to crack for political scientists because attitudes towards Donald Trump are not behaving like attitudes towards other presidents. Where, you know, you would see like a certain, look, there, there were a certain amount of Democrats who would always support Donald, uh, uh, who would always support Barack Obama. There were a certain amount of Republicans who would always support George W. Bush, no matter what happened. But the immovable, the, the number of people who are just immovable, seems to be really and unusually high now in the era of Donald Trump. And so a couple questions that I have, and I don't have answers to these questions. Is this just a Donald Trump effect, where, you know, people just, Donald Trump is uh, the unique kind of person where people love him or they hate him. And, and the people who love him ain't going to change their mind. The people who hate him ain't going to change their mind. Or is this just polarization and partisanship in action, where people are the American public has become so polarized and so partisan that not even a pandemic would change people's views of the president. Not even impeachment would change people's views of the president. Obviously, that's an unanswered puzzle, but what is clear is that the American public's view of Donald Trump is just really baked in and it doesn't seem to be changing that much in response to things that conventionally would affect the president's approval rating.
0: That's almost like an echo of what you just said about the negative partisanship, because yep. if I hate Donald Trump, I mean, I have more reason to hate him now, yep. so my support won't change. If I like Donald Trump, or it's not even that, it's just like I hate Democrats, yep. does this thing happen? I still hate Democrats. That doesn't change. So. And- It has nothing to do with if Donald Trump is doing well or not. and and based on the hatred to the other side, right?
1: Absolutely. And and that really drove voting behavior in 2016, because we saw a lot of people voting for Donald Trump who didn't love the guy, but they despised Hillary Clinton. And on the Democratic side, we saw the same thing, but like the mirror image, where people were voting for Hillary Clinton because they loved hillary clinton but because they couldn't stand donald trump and so i think that that's right song you know i i think that at this point right you know donald trump um you know says well you 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 may not love me but can you can you believe what will happen if those democrats gain power and then the democrats are saying well you know donald trump is a threat to america we got to get him out of there it's totally oriented towards negative partisanship and you know when and, and, uh, yeah i think you're right you know wh- when you view the other party as a threat to the country i don't think that you are likely to be open to persuasion right about like well you know uh about how you might vote or, you know, no one's going to say to themselves, well, the Republicans are a threat to the country as we know it, but Donald Trump is okay. Or, you know, like the Democrats are a threat to the nation as we know it, but uh, gosh, I hate Donald Trump. You know, those attitudes are not internally consistent really. And, with American politics being driven increasingly by animosity and by negativity, yeah, I think that that just puts people into kind of the, the camps where they are and makes them kind of dig in instead of considering the possibility that maybe they were wrong about something before. You know?
0: Interesting, so people are not just voting for Compared to voting for leaders, a particular leader, they're just more voting for the party. And oh. also, and see if you think about, it's I won't say the blaming culture, but it's just like the way the authorities are doing stuff now is always like, yeah, it's my, it's not my fault, it's the other one's fault, right? It's kind of like a a way or a, a new norm now. If you think about like what's going on with even the pandemic, if anybody criticise. Donald Trump on a certain thing yeah, that you didn't do well, well, that's Obama's fault, right? Yeah. He, he doesn't yeah. mind it just to go back for eight or even 20 years to blame each each other other party, which is kind of and, weird.
1: And, and now we can get even deeper into the psyche of the American voter, where, you know, one thing that has changed, you know, uh, we've been talking about kind of changes that have happened over, you know, recent American history with negative partisanship and with the increasing competitiveness of elections. And another thing that's changed is, is that political party has become an increasingly important aspect of people's identity, where, you know, it's, it's not just, I vote Democratic or I vote Republican, but that is a part of who I am. And that is, you know, something that has not, always been as much of the case as it is now that, you know, your, your politics and your partisanship are, you know, not just representative of a behavior that you do when you vote, but it's part of like your conception of who you are. And so this makes politics even more vicious in a way, because if you see an attack on the Republican Party, and you're a Republican, that feels like an attack on you. And the same if you're a Democrat. You know, I think that when politics takes on that identity component, it, it it adds a whole new dimension to things that, you know, means that people take an attack on Donald Trump as an attack on themselves, or an attack on Joe Biden as an attack on themselves. And you know gosh how how do you have constructive dialogue in in that kind of a situation it's it's hard to imagine but um that is a relevant trend in american politics that politics have increasingly become our identity and, and of course this is just a matter of degree right i mean politics has always politics is always about identity but you know it's just now really, really about identity. And, and, and so I think you layer that on top of these other trends of negative partisanship and the competitiveness of elections and then the increasingly kind of internalization of politics and partisanship as an identity. And that, I think, causes people to be even more polarized even more divided, and even more kind of entrenched in their partisan camps.
0: That's interesting. Uh, well, I, I'm not that big into politics, but every time I just think about it in terms of business or product, it's almost like you got an iPhone and you got an Android phone. Just like, well, I buy off an iPhone, but there's nothing against Android. It's simply just iPhone's better for this generation. But then what Android is going to do is like, I'm going to add this and make it cheaper next time, so hopefully you can buy Android which is totally great, but now I feel like, wow, if I am an iPhone fan, I'm so loyal to iPhone. If I buy Android, I feel like I'm not me anymore. I betrayed Apple and I cannot live with myself. So that's kind of like, now, from now on, no matter what iPhone is, I'm gonna buy it. It's iPhone 11, iPhone 20. I'm gonna buy to show that I'm an Apple fan. I don't care that, about their product, right?
1: That's a perfect analogy, right? Like, like I'm a Democrat and I'm a, or I'm a Republican and any threat. And so voting for the other party would undermine my sense of self, right? It's not just, but it's exactly the same as like iPhone versus Android. Like, you know, like you could imagine saying, well, I'm, I'm voting Democrat,
0: but you know, does, you know, I I don't really have a better thing to offer. Yeah, you know, has a better policy or better leaders this time. Yeah, you know, a more casual way to do it.
1: Exactly. You know, like I'm voting Democrat, but, you know, I'm open to those Republicans. I think those Republicans are good people or, you know, I'm voting Republican, but those Democrats have some good ideas. And, you know, I won't, I won't be devastated if they lose. but that's not what the kind of the world that we're living in. And it's very much like what you just said song. Like it's kind of like the difference between saying I'm, you know, I'm buying an iPhone, but it doesn't have anything to do with my sense of self. You know, like an iPhone owner is not part of my identity versus I have, I own an iPhone. I'm buying an iPhone and I am an iPhone user. That is who I am. (laughs) I think it's the perfect
0: analogy. Yeah, that's interesting when you think about iPhone in that way. But when you start to think about political identities, that feels natural. Just like, of course, it's part of my life. Yeah, it, it But it when does. you say iPhone is part of my life, you start to feel kind of, kind of weird so people can see. Yeah, maybe <laughs> definitely we should think about this. Interesting. So we talk about how the game works. We talk about which situations we are in. And we talk about the pandemic's impact on the 2020 elections, which is kind of weird. It doesn't change the uh, approval rate of Donald Trump at all, almost. So you also, we also talk about this, that's something we want to discuss is, let's assume if Joe Biden win or Donald Trump win, what will be the world like? And let's start with Joe Biden. Biden. like If Joe Biden wins the election, what kind of uh, political, how to say, political environment and economic environment are we imagining ourselves living in?
1: It's a really interesting question, Song, and I've been trying to get a read on what a Biden presidency would look like, and it's a little hard because, you know, Biden's initial message was that, you know, Donald Trump is an aberration. Donald Trump is just just like a freak accident of American history, and elect me so I can get the country back to normal, pre-Donald Trump, let's just go back to that and move on as if Donald Trump never happened. That was his message at first. But I think as the campaign has gone on, he's leaned into kind of more of an ambitious agenda. And you know, the, the interesting thing about Joe Biden is that you just you look for where the average Democrat is. And that's where Joe Biden is. Throughout his entire career, he's just positioned himself wherever like the average Democrat is. And so people often say to me, well, that Joe Biden's really changed a lot throughout his career. You know, he used to be, you know, he used to be a lot, you know, more, he he used to be really into law and order stuff. You know, he he used to be more willing to work with Republicans, you know, used to be more moderate. And that's all true, because that's where the kind of the average Democrat was at. But as the Democratic Party has become more racially and ethnically diverse, Joe Biden has changed with that. And as the Democratic Party has become more liberal or progressive, the Democratic, Joe Biden has changed with that too. And so what we're seeing is that this could be a really this could be a presidency that is more ambitious than I think a lot of people are imagining. And I think that because the Democratic Party is moving more toward kind of the liberal progressive side. And so Joe Biden's moving right along with that. And so even though Joe Biden is a pretty middle of the road Democrat, that could still mean a fairly ambitious policy agenda for Joe Biden if he were to get elected. I think an interesting thing to consider also, in addition to kind of how ambitious his policy agenda would be, and I think it would be fairly ambitious. Another thing to consider is would he only serve one term? I mean, he would be the oldest person ever elected to the presidency and he would be in his 80s by the time his first term is over. And so he has, in addition to, in addition to kind of pushing back and saying, well, n- no, my agenda is more ambitious than you give me credit for. Another thing that he said is that he sees himself as kind of a transitional figure. And that's a really interesting pitch to make um, because it does lead me to believe that he might only serve one term and then leave office and have his running mate try to take his place as president. Um, So I think that's how I read of Biden presidency, that Biden is very much at peace with the idea that he is a transitional figure and that he is still someone who is advocating for a more ambitious policy agenda than I think a lot of people realize. Now, Donald Trump. Well, I, I think with Donald Trump, a lot hinges, and, and by the way, this is true for both Biden and Trump, a lot hinges on what happens in the congressional elections. Because Biden is going to be a far more successful president if the Democrats can hold on to the majority in the House of Representatives, and if they can gain the majority away from the Republicans, the majority in the Senate. If the Democrats can do those two things, take control of majorities in both the House and Senate, take complete control of Congress, And that would really bode well for a Biden presidency in terms of getting the kinds of things done that he wants to do. Um, And I think the same is true of Trump um, that presidents have a lot of power, but a president is far more powerful acting along with Congress than the president is acting alone. And so, What I wonder is, you know, do Republicans have some success in the congressional elections this fall? That's going to be a big deal for either president. One final thing I'll note, Song, is the very important issue of the courts and the fact that the president selects the, the, the nominees for the courts, and then those nominees are approved or not approved by the Senate. So that makes a couple of things worth watching. First of all, who wins the presidential election, right? I mean, like the balance of power on the Supreme Court, and in many ways, the, the balance of power in the whole court system is kind of at stake here because will it be moved in an even more conservative direction if Donald Trump is reelected or will it go in a different direction if Joe Biden is elected people talk all the time about Ruth Bader Ginsburg i think she she's if i remember correctly she's 86 years old and so it's hard to imagine her the leader of the liberal wing on the us supreme court it's hard to imagine her being there for much longer so if Donald Trump is president while she leaves office, then she will be replaced with a very conservative judge. And that will continue to move the center of gravity on the Supreme Court even more in the conservative direction. And I think that is a pitch that Donald Trump was very successful in making in the 2016 election And I think it does highlight the important impact that presidents have on the judiciary. In 2016, Donald Trump went to evangelical Christians. He went to conservative thought leaders. He went to conservative activists and said, look, you may not like me. You may not like me. But if you vote for me, I'm going to give you the kinds of judges that you want and so it was an uncomfortable alliance at first which has become i think more of a comfortable alliance between donald trump conservatives and the religious conservatives but at first what donald trump did to solidify the republican party behind that himself was say look you you don't have to love me but just think about the judges i will appoint versus the judges Hillary Clinton will appoint. So I think that presidential elections give us the chance to reflect on all three branches of government. Um, Control of the presidency matters. It matters a lot. And who the president is really matters. But a president's success is very much conditioned by whether or not their party controls Congress, and presidents and the Congress have a huge impact on who serves on the federal courts. So you bring all three branches together. And I think presidential elections are a good time to think about how all three branches work together.
0: That's interesting. That, that's why the battle is so fierce because so many people's um, benefits are at stake. Yes. It's a group of people, right? Not just a single guy, a single leader. Well, that's interesting. You mentioned several. Person's name, and if I remember correctly, their average age is like 78, including Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and all these guys. Is this a special thing? Like all the people at the important position are all at this age, or is this an outlier?
1: It's it's normal for there to be kind of an older crowd in Congress and on the courts and in, in the executive branch. But I think we've really taken things to an extreme, and you know when you have Trump and Biden, the two major party candidates who are both in their seventies,
0: Bernie Sanders,
1: Bernie Sanders, and, in his 70s.
0: and Nancy Pelosi, and all yeah. Of these, yeah,
1: the two the two leaders in Congress, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican majority leader, Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the House, both in their seventies, and then you have the Supreme Court. And I mean, like, the I think like the youngest judge on the Supreme Court is in his 50s. Um, And then they get all the way up to 86, where Ruth Bader Ginsburg is. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I think that this is one reason why Joe Biden, what just bluntly said that he views himself as a transitional figure. Because I think that there is some angst in the Democratic Party. I think there's some angst generally about maybe kind of like this kind of lesser, lower generation. Say for instance, and, and kind of like the younger group was pretty well represented in the Democratic Party's presidential field. Like, you know, Pete Buttigieg is in his 30s, and you know, Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar and uh and people like kamala harris would have all been fairly young as presidents and so i think that that is a good reason why joe biden went toward the message that he's a transitional figure like don't worry like i i i'm just here for a little bit of time while these, these young rascals, Pete Buttigieg and uh, Amy Klobuchar, I, while they get ready to really kind of take the reins in government. Um, I should say, Song, that age is being used in a not so subtle way during the presidential campaign in the sense that President Trump's, one of his core messages is that Joe Biden has lost a step and that Joe Biden doesn't have sort of the mental, he's not with it mentally and that he's sleepy and that he he is um, past his prime. So age is certain to be an interesting issue to watch as we go through this presidential campaign. Normally, and this is the thing about Donald Trump's song, like he's like the least subtle politician ever. Um, Because normally when you're running against an older politician, you kind of refer to their age, but you do so in like a subtle way. Um, like, like, well, he seemed to forget where he was, or something like that. You know, you see, you, you, you kind of like hint, hint, nudge, nudge, like, hey, isn't remember how this guy is kind of old? You kind of do, you kind of do it under the radar. But Donald Trump's campaign is just out there, basically saying, hey, get a load of this old guy. Like, can you believe this? Can you believe this old guy who's all confused and sleepy running for president? You know, one thing that Donald Trump does is he kind of like says things out loud that people think, but conventionally maybe don't say. (laughs) And so normally, I mean, normally you would want voters to think about Joe Biden's age and, you know, for right or wrong, but, you know, normally a political strategist would want people to think, well, is Joe Biden too old? Well, maybe, but Donald Trump just kind of comes out there and says, yeah, yeah, he's too old he's too old. He's, he's lost it. He's lost it, folks. So he, subtlety is not a word I would use to describe Donald Trump. Let's just put it that way.
0: But it's working with the voters, right? The way yeah. he acts. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know,
1: I think that that did um, set him apart in the 2016 election. And, uh, you know, when, when you ask the question, when you think, how did Donald Trump become president? Like the media coverage of him was a big reason that he got about, and and I was looking at some data on this the other day. He got about fifty percent of all coverage in the Republican nomination process, which no had like pos- positive or negative, right? Yeah, He's just constantly there. Interesting, yeah. And, and and this is a field that had like 17 candidates. And so what you had was Donald Trump getting like half of all the coverage, and then the 16 other candidates, you know, desperately fighting for their share of the remaining 50%. And there's some estimates that Donald Trump got several billion dollars worth of free media attention. And the reason he was able to do that was because he would just say things that people weren't used to a presidential candidate saying. And there's a really, a really an anecdote or something that one of his, um, something, I can't remember who, it might've been one of his advisors who said this in, in a documentary I watched, that Donald Trump, when he was speaking, he would watch like the red lights pop up on the cameras, the, the campaign speeches he was given, to show that they were on the air showing him. And his goal was to do whatever he could do to keep those red lights on and to keep, to keep the uh, speech being televised. Um, and so like he would watch the red lights on the cameras and just kind of go through like, well, what's it gonna take to keep those red lights on? And he, in many ways, cracked the code of the American media that, you know, you can, you can, um, you can say, we're, I, I'm going to ban Muslims from the United States, and that will get you attention, it will, it'll get you millions of dollars worth of media coverage, and it doesn't matter if it's bad or good media coverage, it just matters that it is media coverage. And you can say offensive things about, about, you know, prominent women in the media. And you can say, you know, outrageous things about, you know, well, pick pick your topic. You can say outrageous things, and it will be seen as newsworthy, and it will get you free attention in the media, and that free attention will work to your advantage. And he really, like, cracked the code in terms of understanding what is seen as newsworthy in the media and how can he exploit the view of what is newsworthy in the media. He did that better than any politician
0: ever. He's still doing it, right? So you were talking about traditional media, but now adding Twitter and social media. He's, like, the king of Twitter now. It's just, like that's one platform he just constantly attracting traffic positive or negative so i mean before he got elected attracting attention is one thing but seems like after he got elected attracting attention once you are the president you have a different identity now everything you say will definitely worth a lot no matter which channel you do it And seems like he's taking twitter as a as a battlefield, and I'm constantly doing the same thing you just said, even after he's election. Is this a good thing or a bad thing?
1: Well, what I would say is that his campaign posture never stopped when he became president, and, and what you're saying is exactly right. You know, he was using Twitter, and he was using these tendencies among more traditional media um, in order to get attention. You know, he could he could tweet something that was incendiary and know that within moments he would see that tweet start getting coverage on Fox and CNN, right? And and so that worked for him in the campaign. And it worked for him because in a field of 17 candidates and there were some, and the, the Republicans were calling it their strongest field of candidates in a generation. And there were some legit candidates up there, like like Wisconsin's very own Scott Walker was up there. You had people like um you, you had people like Marco Rubio up there and Ted Cruz up there and you had some people who were who who had long been viewed as like presidents in waiting basically um, but Donald Trump was able to basically deprive them of any media attention that they would have really needed for their campaign to gain traction. And now, like you're saying, though, like that's a reasonable way to emerge out of a field of 17, right? Just say the most outrageous things, just say- Before you got elected, that totally makes sense. But Exactly, after, right? yeah. exactly. And that's the curious thing about Donald Trump and that, His campaign approach never evolved after he became president. And there's kind of a running joke uh, among political scientists on, you know, a lot of people were wondering: like, when would the pivot be? You know, when would the pivot be? When would Donald Trump go from being candidate Trump to President Trump? Like, when would he become presidential? And the running joke has been that, like, well, maybe he'll pivot now. Maybe he'll pivot now. And then two months later, well, maybe now he'll pivot. And then, and then four months later, well, maybe now he'll pivot. And the pivot never came. And I think, you know, Trump in many ways reflects features of America at their most extreme. And what he's reflecting here is the increasingly blurred lines between campaigning and governing that, you know, we might imagine a world where the politicians campaign for a while, then the election is held, and okay, well, we'll focus on governing now, you know, we'll focus on public policy, we'll focus on policymaking, and then like maybe three or four months before the election, okay, well, we'll get back into campaign mode now, and we'll get ready for the election, and then we'll get back into governing. But what we're in right now is an era of what political scientists call the permanent campaign, which is where a campaign-style atmosphere and a campaign-style approach is just used constantly. And it's like there's never a break from the campaign to governing. Like there's no clear distinction between those, those two things right there's never like a like okay well we're gonna stop campaigning now because we need to govern for the next year it's where those lines really don't exist between campaigning and governing that's what we mean by the permanent campaign and like i said trump often illustrates these things at their most extreme and i would say that donald trump's basically his continuation of you know The the fact that he just is using the exact same approach that he used on the campaign trail as president is, like, the starkest possible interpretation or the starkest possible portrayal of the permanent campaign there is. Uh, this, This idea that, no, you're always campaigning. You're always campaigning and you know governing has to take a back seat because we're always getting ready for the next election and we're always in a campaign posture and we're always trying to gain a political advantage over the other side and we're always trying to build up our party and put down the other party we're always trying to do that and we're always trying to raise more money for the election and we're always trying to gain a public relations advantage the idea that those things never stop is the permanent campaign and the permanent campaign gets in the way of good governance because if people never get out of a campaign mindset when do they get into a governing mindset it's a it, it's a it's a big problem right now in america
0: there are maybe some worries like from me as a layman about politics i would think about like you know once you got elected you are the president so when you speak people don't just see you as a candidate they see you and the and the whole shadow behind you and now you are basically using that power borrowing that power from a temporary position to put yourself in uh advantage in the campaign coming coming in in the next 4 years is it is there any worries about presidency using all the resource of the presidency to help him to win you know or his party to win or take advantage in the next election are there yeah. any worries
1: yeah so so i would i would say first of all i i don't want to go too far here. You know, I want to say it's, it's rational for presidents to use their office to seek re-election. It's it's natural,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, Mm -hmm. and it's perfectly rational for presidents to want to put their political party at an advantage. You know, those things aren't unusual. Um, but there was a really interesting study done by Julia Azari, who's a professor of political science at Marquette and one of the leading scholars of the American presidency. And she pointed out how the modern presidency has a moral leadership component to it, where, you know, in a time of crisis, presidents are expected to bring people together and they're expected to articulate widely shared values. You know, I mean, and people have different views on George W. Bush, but. I think it's fair to say that in the immediate aftermath of September 11th George W Bush really leaned into a moral leadership role where he was focused on kind of dealing with the the immediate pain and the immediate trauma in the aftermath of of that tragedy, and, and was leaning into kind of the moral leadership dimension of the modern presidency, where, which, again, is about being like a comforter in chief, you know, like comforting the country, saying, we're all going to get through this, you know, um, you know, articulating kind of common ground, areas of common ground that people have, articulating common values that people have, that moral leadership role, I think, ha- has become an important element of the modern presidency. But what Julia Zari said in this very interesting article was that Donald Trump views himself, or at least acts, in more the mode of an earlier American president, where moral leadership wasn't possible or wasn't really demanded, where presidents didn't have kind of the expectation that they bring people together in a time of crisis, that they articulate shared values, where presidents didn't even really have the means to do that because of kind of the limitations in mass communication technology. Um, And so the the, uh, one way of understanding Donald Trump, is as more the style of an earlier american president where you know they weren't visible during a tragedy you know they they they, they were not um giving primetime addresses to offer words of comfort they were not um you know focused on kind of, well, you know, times are tough right now, but the, these are the values that we all share and we're going to get through this. Much more characteristic of recent presidents than the early American presidents. And her Azar, Julia Azari's argument, and I think it's a good one, is that Donald Trump is much more like the early presidents who really focused on solidifying their position within their political party. And how would they communicate? Well, they would communicate through the newspapers. And in early American history, the newspapers were uh, an extension of the political parties. Um, you know, I mean, it took a fair bit of time in early American histories for kind of a truly independent press to develop. And, and so presidents could use partisan newspapers to communicate with the hardcore partisans within their political party preaching to the choir basically um and so that's kind of how i would think about this song you know i I would think about this as president trump you know bucking the norms of the modern presidency especially in that dimension of moral leadership where and and, you know you, you saw moral leadership um And, you know, people, again, you know, people can like George W. Bush. They cannot like, they might not like George W. Bush. Um, You know, maybe they like uh, the Democrats, maybe they don't like the Democrats. But I think what people can agree on is that in times of crisis, presidents of both parties tend to kind of lean into that moral leadership role, and it just hasn't been Donald Trump's strength, or it hasn't been his
0: desire for, for whatever reason. Interesting, yeah. When you when you mentioned George Bush, I remember not even just in the United States, in the world, in the Western world and Eastern world by that time, he was like considered to be a superhero. It's not what you did or whatever, just the just the image you put there can actually put comfort people and put people in peace and say, we're still in control. And the thing is, we're we going to solve this problem. It's a tragedy. We're more for, with you, but we're going to solve the problem. We're going to use all we can kind of solve the problem. Does that actually bring me to the next thing is, um, I don't know. Like, when Donald Trump started Twitter or something, that's one way to think about it is um, just the campaign going on and on, right, forever. But if you think outside the United States, internationally, most of the countries and the leaders of other countries, the decision group of the countries, are looking for every single move and action of the United States president because that's going to de- define a lot of things in the world, it's the the global order. You know, a lot of decisions are going to be made. Who the what kind of personality is this new re- president is going to have, and how how do you see that? Like the the image of the president of the United States as an international leader, especially I, given that we constantly see the leader is twittering <laughs> on stuff.
1: <himself>. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, and, and, you know, I think this, this would lead me to another uh, distinction between kind of modern presidents and the early presidency where, you know, the modern presidency has been very embedded in the broader world. And, you know, in in early American history, from George Washington on, and it did indeed start with George Washington, kind of this America first attitude, that if the United States gets involved in what's going on around the world, then it's going to be bad. Um, it's going to do more harm than good. And I, I, again, son, like we we see this kind of rhetoric from American presidents going back to George Washington. That like as the United States, we have to stay out of. And in his words, it was permanent alliances with the uh, with the rest of the world. Um, Partly for strategic reasons and partly for practical reasons. Um, you know, just practically, the United States was a new and vulnerable country, um, and so uh, you know, cer- certainly there were qu- there would there should be questions about just like how, um, you know, how much good would it do for a country to get deeply involved in the world. And how much could a country even really get involved in the world if the country is still new, developing, still very vulnerable? Um, Now, as we got into the 20th century, uh, presidents moved more from kind of the America first and isolationist mode to more of kind of like a world leadership mode. And this has been something that has not been a partisan issue it's not been a partisan issue to view the president as not only a moral leader in the United States, but, uh, have, but as having a very important leadership internationally. And there have been disagreements about what that should look like. I, you know, I mean, like, for instance, Barack Obama and George W. Bush had very different views about what America's role in the world should be. But what presidents of both parties have not disagreed on, at least the modern presidents, they have not disagreed on the fact that America should be deeply involved around the world, you know, whether that be promoting democracy, promoting human rights, whether that be, um, you know, in in kind of like an economic matter. And so I do think that just as moral leadership is a way that Donald Trump breaks from modern presidents of both parties, I think you could say that his position on America's um, standing in the world is, is another area. I mean, America first was one of his campaign slogans. And that type of slogan is typical of kind of like a pre-World War president. And I think that, you know, he's dealing, you know, I think what he, what he thinks he's tapping into is frustration among kind of his core base with the effects of globalization. and. You know, I don't know if he's been successful in doing that, but what I do know is that Donald Trump has been remarkably consistent on the issue of America's position in the world. Song, this is like the one issue that Donald Trump has been consistent on throughout his time in the public eye. Like, I laugh because Donald Trump has taken, like, every position on every issue throughout his, like, 30, 40 years in the public eye. But the one issue that he's been consistent on is that America is getting screwed over by other nations. And that trade, and that that, uh, globalization and international trade are harming the United States. And... So I think that that reflects his real breakpoint with these more recent presidents, that, you know, among modern presidents, it's taken for granted that America should be a very active and central player in the world. The question is just, what does that look like? With Donald Trump, that very assumption gets called into question. So... I think that that does get to yet another breakpoint between Donald Trump and other modern presidents of both parties.
0: That's interesting, yeah. I recently read some comments on this. That is, with the globalization going on, the economy is going up, but the distribution of wealth earned from globalization in the United States didn't necessarily went into the people. And we started to see a group of people who were used to be in that like middle class, right in the middle. So it's like a normal distribution. But now the people in the middle kind of like collapsed. And these are the people who suffered from globalization. Their salary went down and their jobs are gone. And, and then the comment just said like Donald Trump is probably the only one who is responding to those issues, who is advocating for the voice of these group of people. And they, they were actually saying, like, this is actually a very strong factor why Donald Trump got elected in 2016. And if I buy that story, then it's no surprising he's so consistent on this particular issue, right? I I, th-
1: I think he's been consistent. And I think he actually, this is like something that I'm pretty confident that Donald Trump, like, truly believes, you know? Like, Donald Trump is famously malleable. And, you know, Donald, Donald Trump is, you know, It's it's always never a sure thing what Donald Trump's view is on a given issue, but on this issue of globalization and the United States' position in the world, I'm pretty sure that he is, you know, hostile to globalization and he is hostile to the, the idea that the United States would have kind of a key and central position in the world. And to your point, Song. you know, it is a a really interesting question. You know, did this play into Donald Trump's election? And there have been different theories put forward about that. You know, like Andrew Yang, who ran for the Democratic nomination. He said that automation was a main reason um, that... Was driving voters to Trump. Uh, there's not great evidence to support that, but you know, I look. I think automation is still an issue to be taken seriously, and you know, you could ask the same question about globalization, right? Um, I think um, political scientists would say that people's views about the United States' role in the world did correlate with how they voted in pretty unexpected ways. Because, you know, given, like, like say, for instance, like in the George W. Bush era of like the war in Afghanistan and war in Iraq, Republicans were far more supportive of international trade. They were far more supportive of military intervention abroad. But what you've seen is that Donald Trump has pulled the party in a different direction, where now the Republican Party is much more skeptical of international trade, much more skeptical of interventions abroad. A good example, by the way, of how a lot of public opinion is driven by like what political leaders are saying. And the other thing I would say is that a big, I, a big factor underlying like why people voted for Donald Trump, um, we've been talking a lot about identity and it, it had a lot to do with identity. Um, like demographic threat, for instance. Um, you know, the changes, the, the changing demographic makeup of the United States, are people comfortable with that? Or are they uncomfortable with that? Um, you know, immigration. Do people want more immigration? Do they want less immigration? Um, You know, what do people think about uh, kind of like, uh, you know, the the United States as like a Christian nation? Um, Kind of those issues about like what kind of a nation is the United States, there's some really like big deep questions about like what kind of a country do we want to be and how people felt about those questions as they pertain to well what do I think about diversity what do I think about the United States as a nation of immigrants what do I think about the United States as as a you know is the United States a Christian nation like those really big things drove a lot of attitudes and drove a lot of behavior in terms of how people voted and in terms of how people think about Donald Trump
0: that's interesting now what's your I I was I was mentioning like all the candidates are kind of like really old and the first thing reflect to me is actually Andrew Young just like he is really young and I would like to see more young people actually participating in this kind of uh, political campaign and end up maybe not winning, but having their voice speak out and maybe make a good suggestions to policies. And uh, is that thing happening more and more or less and less?
1: Well, you know, the best, the best predictor of whether or not someone votes is their education level, but the second best predictor of whether or not someone votes is their age. age right? okay. um, and it's no surprise that when you look at the winners and losers in American public policy, the big time winners are the elderly in terms of the level of benefits that they get, in terms of the amount of government spending that is devoted toward programs favoring a certain group, the elderly are the big winners. And that's for two reasons, Song. It's because of their political organization, and most notably the AARP, which is one of the most powerful groups in the United States. And it's also due to the fact that the elderly are seen as a deserving group, you know, that they're kind of like a, a group that is perceived as sympathetically. And so as a political scientist, when I'm trying to explain, well, like, why is the government doing like what it's doing? I often think about those two things, like how politically organized is a group and how is a group perceived? And with young people, like, I don't, I don't know how, young people are really perceived uh, by the public or by political leaders. But what I do know is that young people are not terribly politically organized. And I think it's fair to say that if young people were more politically organized, there would be more pressure on politicians to deliver the kinds of policies that might benefit younger people. Because you have to think, well, who are the politicians scared of? They're scared of the people who vote. And they're scared of the people who are politically organized, especially. And if you, the reason that Social Security is called the third rail of American politics is because a great way to bring your political career to an end is to propose reductions to Social Security, because you're gonna have hundreds and thousands of angry seniors calling your office and mailing letters to your office and donating to your opponent and picketing your office. It's gonna be ugly because seniors are so politically organized that if, if their stuff from the government comes under threat, they can mobilize to repel that threat. And that's simply not the case for younger people. Now, another thing here, is, Song, is you know, would it matter if younger people were more in elected office? And the political science research suggests that it would matter. And there is a long line of research showing that your identity as someone in political office it informs how you see the world. A, a good example of this is that whether or not someone, there there was recent research, just to give you an example, showing that whether or not someone served in the military affects how they perceive defense pol- policies. And there's a very long line of research showing that women legislators prioritize different issues than male legislators, and that women legislators have a different perspective on, on certain key issues than male legislators do. The same is true for people of color. Um, and the same is true for people who have different kind of occupational backgrounds before they become a um, an elected official. So I would say that, you know, part of the problem for young people right now is a lack of political organization. And I would say that more political organization could improve things for younger people. And the current research would lead me to believe that if more younger people were elected, then that would make a difference just because, and it's not like people's you know, it's not like people's backgrounds or identities influence everything they do in, in, you know, a lawmaking role, but it sure does influence them in important ways. And so those are kind of the two things I would piece together
0: there. Interesting. Uh, You you were saying the elders are more politically organized. Is it, is this an elder thing? Or is it actually for that particular generation, which happened to be old?
1: Well, that's that's a terrific question. I I don't have a good answer for you on that. What I would tell you, this shows the power of kind of lo- lobbyists and interest groups. I I think the AARP is is a great example of that because they have millions of members who they can mobilize at the drop of a hat, and they have powerful lobbyists, and they can fund campaigns. And so I think that, so what I would say is that I don't, I doubt that the elderly have been as politically organized as they are now. In fact, as I'm saying this, uh, a study that I read years ago when I was actually an undergrad is coming to mind, um, that in response to the enactment of Social Security in the New Deal in the 1930s, groups formed to protect Social Security once it had been established. So you had this new policy, Social Security, to pay uh, pay benefits to the elderly. And then once people were kind of liking that policy, you had groups and institutions who got formed in order to basically scare politicians who wanted to take away Social Security or scare politicians who wanted to cut Social Security. So you had a really interesting involvement, evolving nature here, where the elderly, in many ways, became more politically invested and more politically organized because the stakes got higher, right? I mean, like Social Security was at stake and then later Medicare was at stake and so that gave the elderly a reason to get organized and to form these institutions that would put pressure on any politicians who tried
0: to threaten those programs interesting are there anything similar to that for young people like i don't know college tuition <laughs> or yeah, yeah. yeah i
1: mean i mean there could there could be um you know i think that uh that the challenge for for young people is kind of finding finding a cause to rally around, as the elderly did with Social Security and Medicare. You know, they, they had a very tangible thing that, you know I mean, and the AARP, just to kind of continue with that example, it's a diverse group. I mean, like there are Republicans and Democrats and all kinds of people in the ARP. But it's a group that can come together in rallying around protecting social security and medicare and i wonder if there's something similar that younger people can rally around that can be kind of like a focal point of a broader movement i don't know what that would be but the lesson from kind of the growing political power of the elderly is that it really took off when it started to rally around protecting social security
0: and protecting Medicare. Interesting. Yeah. What do you think, um, the, the going on George Floyd protest is going to do to the, do you think that's going to do, do a big, have a big impact on the 2020 election?
1: It's, it's really hard to say right now, Song. Um, I will say that there have been some interesting public opinion data points that have come out, showing increasing concern for um, for racial discrimination and racial oppression, and showing increasing concern for police conduct, and showing in uh, there's a huge increase in the number of people who who agreed that police targeting mistreating and 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 just not in just just miscon police misconduct as it relates to communities of color but that is becoming an increasingly um increasingly high priority for the public in terms of the issues that matter now I don't know how this will play politically at the ballot box. But what I can say is that this will affect the agenda. It'll affect the issues that people are thinking about. And agenda space is limited, right? I mean, you know people can't think about every issue all the time and and governments can't address every issue all the time and so i always tell my classes that when you think about the public policy process the agenda setting phase is really important like which issues get attention and which issues don't which issues get addressed and which issues don't I mean, it has to start with an issue getting attention, right? I mean, like if an issue never gets attention, if it never gets on the public's radar, if it doesn't get on the radar of lawmakers, then nothing can ever be done about it. So my observations are that agenda space is limited and that agenda space is really important. And I think the most I can say right now as a political scientist to, you know, who I, and you know, I don't specialize in, in racial or ethnic politics, but just as someone who studies legislatures and studies the lawmaking process, i, I w I'm paying attention to how this affects the agenda setting process. Like, does this get police reform on the agenda? does this get police reform on the agenda does this get the the um the the priorities of communities of color on the agenda in a way that wasn't the case before and if that happens i think that it would be something meaning it would it would be something that matters because you know like i said um there are a million issues out there at a given time, and only a few can be on the agenda. And so if policing reform, if issues of concern to communities of color get on the agenda, then I think that would be something interesting to watch, because if something gets on the agenda, then there's pressure to take action. Um, so just someone who focuses on legislatures, that's kind of the angle that I'm taking. Admittedly a limited angle, but I, I think that, um, you know, these, these sorts of tragedies have in the past ha- affected the public's agenda and have in the past affected the political agenda. I, again, too early to say exactly what's going to happen, but at least that's what I'm watching for.
0: Cool. Well, we, o- we almost hit two hour mark here <laughs> without noticing, but uh, I have close it right now. So, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Antoni. I learned a lot from you. Thanks for having me.